Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello to you. Hello to the audience. Hello. Great to be back with you guys. And Max, what have you got for us this week? This week on the show is Elon Green. And Elon is a journalist. You probably know his work. He's written for many, many magazines. He often writes pieces that are based in archives, history-based pieces, and he writes often true crime work. And he has a new book out. It's called Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York. It's the story of a serial killer who preyed on men in gay bars in New York in the 80s and 90s. And it really brings together lots of things that Elon is interested in. It's really a work of history. Um, it is a true crime story, but I think his feelings on true crime from when we got to know him, which was like 10 years ago, and I'll talk about that in a second, uh, have changed. And the book really centers on the victims, not on the killer. And we talked a lot about true crime, the nature of the genre, how Elon's feelings about it have changed. And it's a conversation that I've been having with him on some level for a long time because Elon is a contributing editor at Longform. He was one of the first people who was picking stories. Many, many years ago. Many years ago. Yeah, we realized that it was fully a decade ago that he and I first met. And uh, so we talked about that too. And uh, it's amazing thinking about that conversation 10 years ago. And now he's got this book, Last Call, which is getting just absolutely fantastic reviews. And uh, they're totally well-deserved. It's um, it's great. Congratulations uh, to Elon. If you've got something that you'd like to do for, you know, around 10 years, good way to do that with an email newsletter. No, never goes out of fashion. Uh, do it with MailChimp. They make it easy and they make the show possible. And now here's Max with Elon Green. Elon Green, welcome to the show. Hey, Max. What a thing having you on the Long Form Podcast, man. Long time coming. It's breaking my brain. It's been 10 years. I know. It actually has been 10 years since we sat in that bar in Fort Green 
I think it was the alibi. I think you're right. You'd written to me. Uh, you had basically said, stop emailing me stories. <laughs> yeah, you were. Stop being such a pain in the ass. <laughs> you were, Well, pain in the ass was not right at all. You were consistently emailing me, recommending articles that we should put on long form, archival articles, all of which were brilliant picks that I was embarrassed. For a while, I was embarrassed that I didn't know about them. And then it tipped into some other thing where I was like, I, this is not embarrassing that I don't know these. There's literally one person on earth who knows these. And the guy keeps emailing me. He should just be part of this project, not just someone who emails me. And so you and I met for a drink literally 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Wow, we are so fucking old, man. It's incredible. And uh, I feel like another fateful thing happened over that drink, which is that I suggested that you open an account on Twitter.com. Yes, that is correct. Uh, both David Grant and I blame you for that. Yeah, there's significant moments in my life too convincing you and David Grant to get on Twitter, although for different reasons, because my sense is that in some ways Twitter changed your life, and I want to talk about that, but I'm hoping we can talk about that uh, toward the end of this conversation because the thing we should talk about right now is that you published a fucking book, man. I did. It still feels not real. Yeah. I mean, this is a book that you've been working on for, what, four years? Maybe three and a half, something okay. like that. So it's a book you've been working on for three and a half years. And I know the idea of writing a book, of finding something that you could sink your teeth into in this way is an idea you've been circling for much longer than that. And thinking back to that bar 10 years ago and what that Elon would have thought about this moment has been really, it's been really fun for me to think about, but I wonder what it all means to you. You know, 10 years ago, I didn't have the slightest idea what it meant to write a book. It was just an idea. I mean, it, it felt in hindsight, like one of those things where you think, well, if I was three inches taller, I could dunk. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, of course, yeah. it's not true. Uh, the first time I was ever, you know, clued into the reality of writing a book was uh, by my friend David Yaffe. And, you know, I think he probably had gotten tired of me yapping about the idea of writing a book because he finally said, look, if you want to write a book, you need to know that it's at least two years of your life. And you're going to have to write at least 10 of the longest features you have ever written, meaning chapters, about a single subject. So unless you are ready to do that, don't even consider the possibility of writing a book. It's a waste of time. And that, more than anything else, was probably why it took so long to even find a topic. Just because that premise was so daunting? Yes, it raised the bar so high, in part because my attention span for stories is so limited. By the time I'm done with a story, I'm pretty much done with that mm -hmm. story. Yeah. And what ended up happening with the book was I accidentally found a story that I actually never wanted to end. I never wanted to stop working on this book. 
I never had a bad day working on this book because it was such a privilege. And I learned something new every day. It was a gift. Man, I cannot believe that you just said that you never had a bad day writing your first book. That's such a sort of annoying thing to hear. <laughs> yeah. I feel like everyone has miserable, miserable days writing their first book. I know uh, Pam Kolf and I, we would check in every now and then because she's working on a book and I was working on a book. And she'd say, ask me how I was doing. And I'd always have some cheerful answer for her. And she would say, that's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> And I said, I don't know what to tell you. Well, there's another part of you saying that that's surprising, which is about the nature of the book. But before we go too far down that road, can you give the kind of like quick summary of this story that you just finished telling? Yeah. I mean, the, the elevator pitch version of the book is that it's about the murders of four gay men or men who were presumed to be gay in Manhattan over a three-year period in the early 90s and about the resulting police investigations into their murders. But the larger scope of the book is about their lives, the political backdrop of these murders, the AIDS epidemic that was ravaging the city and the country at the same time, and also about queer life and queer history in other cities, including their hometowns. Those two different strands of this book, one, this straightforward kind of true crime story of these murders, and then these much larger themes around queer life, New York in the 80s and 90s, these piano bars in Manhattan, when you read the book, it's so clear that your heart and interest is in the latter rather than the former. And one of the ways that manifests is you just spend so much more time with the victims than with the killer. You know, it's not even close, really. The victims are fully sketched out characters. You know who they are. You can picture them, you understand both their external and their internal lives by the end of the book. And the killer is a, I don't want to say like a one-dimensional character, but it's just who he is is not what matters to the book. And I wonder, basically, like, did you find this story and it was just like, holy shit, there was a serial killer that no one ever knew about. That's a good story. And then something changed for you. Or was it always that you saw all of these other themes being the real story? Well, you know, that sort of visceral reaction, there's that serial killer that no one ever knew about, was the initial reaction for about three seconds, only mm -hmm. after finding the old story about it. But it didn't go any further than that. Because, you know, after that, what mattered to me, you know, almost immediately just from reading that original story in The Advocate from October of 1994, were the stories of the men themselves. And after that, to me, the serial killer became the afterthought, in no small part because he never confessed, 
never took responsibility for the crimes. And also, in general, murderers are not interesting. Murderers, like people in the mafia, gangsters, have been elevated by our culture into something that is supposed to be, you know, flashy and interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's deeply wrong. These are just people who have made really horrific decisions to snuff out other people's lives. You say murderers aren't interesting, but basically all of the data on Netflix or on longform.org indicates that people are actually very interested in murderers. Like literally anytime there's a headline with murder in the title on Longform, it's like 10, 20x the reads that any other article is. And well, and it's in the subtitle of my book too. But what I mean is the murderers and the murderer should not be the driver. It should simply be the catalyst for the other story. Mm -hmm. And the other story is the, the victims. And the other story is the political backdrop and the environment that they are walking through. In the case of my book, that's the bars and the city and the milieu. Right. But I mean, I guess, and maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I think the thing I'm trying to figure out is, is that a moral philosophy or is that something that you think audiences really want, that that's something that people can actually connect with. Do you know what I mean? Like, is this book a response to the way that these stories are normally told? Or is it the way that you believe this one was best told? So at the beginning, it was mostly about my interests. And my interests at the beginning were the victims. And were their lives because they were all so different and they were coming from such different places. And they were all on their own terms, fascinating. Hmm. But the longer I worked on the book, there was that conscious reaction to what I saw in the genre going on around me, which would eventually manifest itself in a feature I did for The Appeal about problems with the genre itself. That piece is about the whiteness of true crime. Yes, but absolutely. I had it, you know, in the back of my mind that I wanted my book to be everything that I felt the genre largely was not. And in my head, I was trying to follow in the footsteps of books that got it right, such as Killers of the Flower Moon and podcasts like Missing and Murdered. Yeah, we had Connie Walker, who hosts that show on Longform a couple of weeks ago. Evan interviewed her, and it's a fantastic interview. If, uh, if people listening have not heard that one, go back and make sure you do. But Connie talked about this idea of storytelling versus storytaking, which I found really, really compelling. It framed it in a way that I hadn't heard it before. And I appreciate what you're saying. I want to, I just want to push on it for a second longer because I've been a part of some true crime projects in which the goal was to also 
not fall prey to this sort of tropes and sort of lowest common denominator of the genre. And I found it challenging to do that in part because I guess I sort of felt like, man, if the genre is so kind of like morally tricky, like why are we doing this at all? And I guess I wonder how you square that too. It's like you wrote a book that absolutely was trying to counter some of these dynamics, putting the victim first, not turning the murderer into some kind of anti-hero, and more importantly, just like not spending a bunch of time trying to understand him, but instead trying to paint this larger picture of the world in which he was operating. Well, I'll tell you how I squared it. I never considered the book true crime. And this was from the beginning. I viewed the murders and the investigations as a means to write a work of history. Mm -hmm. And I knew that would ideally allow me to write about queer history in different decades in different cities and the gay bar scene in New York in the early 90s and the way the AIDS epidemic was intersecting with everything in a way that hadn't been done before. And to a large degree, I viewed the murder investigation as just the catalyst to allow me to do that. And I think that there's a reason that the book gets sometimes classified as true crime. It sometimes gets classified as queer literature and sometimes as history because it very much is all three. But in my head, it was never true crime. That makes sense to me. I mean, I'm not trying to push too much on something where it's not there. I, I just push as hard as you want. I should be cornered on this stuff because in part, look, look, look. And let me just back up and say, I didn't always feel this way. You know, the stuff that Gretchen and I posted a long form for years. I was as bad as anybody else. Yeah, you love that stuff. Yes, for a long time I did. And I don't know when that changed, but it did. You know, it could have been as simple as someone articulating the idea for the first time and me thinking, you know what, that's correct. You know, I I don't think I was like wrestling with myself. I think at some point I thought, you know what, that's right. And what when you say that's right or that idea, what, what exactly do you mean? That the genre of true crime is largely damaging and that most of the time the stuff that gets foregrounded and centered in works of true crime is just all backwards. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. 
The app has lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly the voices sounded totally natural and human to me this listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free now normally you get a two-week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free go to listening.com slash long form or use the code long form at checkout listening your life just got a lot easier Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Part of what I'm pushing on, right, is like, yeah, you post a lot of really grisly true crime stories to long form of the years. And then we would look at the stats and it was clear that people were interested in those stories and wanted to read them. And so I think people look at data like that and think, okay, well, that's what people want. So let's give them more of that. And it the churn becomes faster and faster. People are turning around the stories faster and faster, which I think leads to less and less thoughtful versions of how to tell those stories, you know? And what's interesting about your book, and I guess it comes out of that moment whenever it clicked for you, but then putting years in to do the work, is like that dynamic is in every single one of the reviews of your book. Like that's what people seem to be responding to is that flip is putting the victim source of not centering the killer and the crimes. And so in this way, it feels like maybe that logic that that's what people want is also flawed. You know, it's like, I mean, like you have this glowing review in the times. I just read another one in the guardian and basically the reviews are like, this is very refreshing. Look, I didn't know how people were going to respond to that flip. As I was working on the book, I, the only readers I was ever thinking about were the victims, families, and friends. So it never occurred to me to think, you know, is this going to fly with the larger audience? Because it didn't matter to me. I only knew that I had to be able to write something and publish something that I was comfortable with 
and that I loved. And I wrote exactly the book that I set out to do. Hmm. And I didn't know at the beginning if I was going to be able to do that. How's it feel to have done it? Very strange. I really thought I'd bitten off more than I could chew at the beginning because I would sit down with publishers and say, this is what I want to do. But to some degree, I was talking out of my ass. And also, (laughs) I didn't know if the material was there to do it. And one of the things that was very lucky is that it did turn out that the material was there and that sources that I didn't know existed stepped in to help me tell those stories. So what what was the moment? When did it turn? When did you feel like you went from talking out of your ass in some book publisher offices to uh, having the story? I was working on what is now the second chapter about the life and death of a man named Peter Stickney Anderson, who was a banker from Philadelphia. And one of the first people I talked to for the chapter was a man named Anthony Hoyt. Because at the very beginning of the research, the only people I was really talking to were people who had testified at the trial. And at at the trial, Anthony had identified himself as Peter's roommate or former roommate. And I said to Anthony, you know, tell me everything you know. Tell me your story. How did you first meet Peter? And Anthony told me about how they had roomed together in Manhattan in the mid-60s. They had met at a bar and there was a vacant space in Anthony's apartment. And um, Peter at the time was working for Bank of New York. And uh, Anthony was in advertising. And he tells me this story and, you know, eventually reiterates the portion of the story that overlapped with the murders and the trial. And he says, um, you know, and then we, we went our separate ways sometime in the late 60s. And I said, Anthony, did you go to Peter's wedding in 1970? And he said, no, we had a falling out. And I said, oh, over what? And Anthony paused for a good 15 seconds. And he said, well, we weren't strictly roommates. And I said, oh. You know, I was at that point in the project where I wasn't seeing the subtext of anything. And he said, "Um, we had kind of a romance. And he proceeds to tell me this story about how they were each other's first love and would see each other on and off over the years. And I got off the phone with Anthony and I realized that I had accidentally found his, his first partner. And it was at that point that I realized that I might be able to do that for everybody, not in the sense of finding their first partners, but just finding people who who knew them at the beginning of who they later became, you know, their, their true selves. Hmm. And that was just, that was a huge deal to me because I wasn't even looking for the Anthony of Peter's life 
He just presented himself. And why, why did that mean such a huge deal to you? Because when you're writing about somebody's life, who they love and who loves them is one of the most important things imaginable because you're seeing them at their happiest. And to know Anthony meant to know what made Peter happy. And the scenes that you describe in the book, the energy and air in these piano bars, I mean, part of that is that those were spaces in which great numbers of people were at their happiest. They were like little sort of happiness oases. They got to be themselves. As the late Robbie Brown told me when he first visited Fire Island Pines, he said he got to feel what a straight person feels every day of their life. He was given the space to be himself. And to some degree, that's what those bars were for too. And so once you hear something like that, or once you have that door opened, that's when it felt to you like, all right, I know what this thing is now? Yes, that was the moment. That moment said to me that for all of these men, just keep digging. And maybe you'll figure them out. Maybe you won't. But the more you dig, the more true the portrait will be. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I, you know, part of what I want to talk to you about too is just your capacity and curiosity and interest in history and in archives. I mean, you know, like we were saying at the beginning of this, like the way that you and I met was because you had an encyclopedic knowledge of like <laughs> magazine articles from not just like the 70s and 80s and 90s, but like you were finding stuff from the 1800s, you know? And your sort of like energy and excitement over finding things that were not going to be found. Like I was looking through our entire email history before we talked and like the number of exclamation points associated with finding like an Esquire story from 1971 that I had never read before was tremendous. A lot of exclamation points. It was like, You'd write about finding these pieces in the same way that like someone who've like found a thousand dollars lying on the street. You know what I mean? There's just like, can you believe this? Amazing. And I wonder if you know where that passion of yours comes from. I think to some degree it's about wanting to fill in the gaps in my own knowledge in a very specific way, in a very targeted way, because I have incredible amount of cultural blind spots. I still haven't seen Top Gun. But I think a lot of what I love about archives and about reading old stories is that you're allowing yourself a peek into history. You're being dropped into history at the moment it is unfolding. It's a time machine. So... When I was spending time for the book in the LGBT Center archives, researching the history 
of the Anti-Violence Project. And I found a press release announcing the new name change and their new funding and that they were now taking a uh, hundred calls a day uh, of anti-gay assaults. Well, you're being dropped into 1982 in New York. And it's as if you're listening in on history. And that's exhilarating. How can you not love that? Does it appeal to you more than reporting things in real time? I hate reporting things in real time. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> I did not take a single note the entire time I worked on this book because not only am I not good at documenting things that are happening around me, I don't even care about it. If I have to find out about what happened during an event, I'll just keep calling the sources who were there 12 times until I get the story. So archival material appeals to me for that reason, because it means I just don't have to think about taking notes. Yeah. It also means you're, in many respects, you're sort of there by yourself. Yes. Like you're not competing with anyone for anything. No. It's just whether or not you can find it. That's right. And that appeals. Sure. I mean, it certainly, um, it means I don't have to look over my shoulder. Yeah. That only happened once. And I'll tell you that story. So I never did have to look over my shoulder while I was working on a piece. But it turned out once that maybe I should have. Years ago, I got very invested in these unsolved murders in San Francisco. Yeah, the doodler. Yeah, and over a, a, an 18-month period in 1974 and 75, quite a few gay men had been killed and their bodies left in parks and on waterfronts. And, and I just got stuck on this case for reasons I still don't really understand. And I, I spent a lot of time in, at the New York Public Library main branch looking through their microfilm archives of uh, the Sentinel and the Advocate and a number of other places which where the story was to be found at that time, and only those places. And I flew out to San Francisco uh, to meet with the cold case detective. You know, I will never, as long as I live, come out ahead financially on that story. And so after several years of working on this story, I finally decided, okay, I have to write this. And everyone I had pitched it to rejected it. I won't mention their names, but almost all of them apologized after it came out. It's okay if you want to mention their names. I'm not going to. They know who they are. <laughs> um, Corey Sika at the All said, you know, we'll take this. So I kept working on it. And... Um, it came out, and it was, it made a, a splash. It was the, the first time many people learned that this had happened. And I got an email, oh, a day or two after it came out from Sarah Weinman, 
whose work I knew, but, you know, I didn't know her, but I revered her work. And uh, at the time, she had written an extraordinary story for Hazlitt called The Real Lolita, among many other pieces. And she said to me, you know, I had looked into this case too and just didn't get anywhere with it. And I had a little heart attack when I read that (laughs) because I thought, oh my God, Sarah was working on this too and I didn't know it. You know, and thank God I didn't know it because I think when you're worried about who might be behind you, or as Satchel Page put it, who might be gaining on you, you can't put your head down and do the real work unencumbered. Yeah. It's also why I'd just be a terrible beat reporter. Deadlines are not good for me. I feel like, um, you know, you're so thoughtful talking about the book and talking about this work. And it's clear that you have really put in time to figure out what you wanted from the book, not just from its contents, but from its structure and its impact. So people who don't know you might think that you are always this contemplative. Absolutely not. (laughs) You can be a grumbly ass man. Oh, most of the time. Well, maybe that maybe that, that that gets to one other duality of Elon Green that I'd like to ask you about, and then I'll let you go. Which is my experience of you is that you have these two modes, and one of them are these deep archival dives, finding stories that were sitting somewhere. Even the interviews you do, they're with people that we've kind of forgotten, but shouldn't have. You know, like there's a real theme that runs through your work. It's about stories that are there, but that virtually everyone has forgotten and you're going to go and try and find them and bring them back. And then the other part of you, at least your public self, is you spend a lot of time on on the Twitter, weighing in on whatever the kind of like journalistic issue of the day is, you know, shitting on uh, politicians. You're so in it. On Twitter, and I wonder how you explain that gap or those two things, like extremely present and all alone in history. The former allows me to be the latter. Twitter has allowed me to vent, for a lack of a better way to put it, and to expel that stuff so that I'm not thinking about it when I am doing the other work. Huh. So once I can tell Chris Eliza to go fuck himself, <laughs> then I can put my head down and work on chapter nine. <laughs> so it's like it's like uh, telling Chris Eliza to fuck himself is a little bit like going for a run in the morning. You just like burn off some energy. That's right. It seems so healthy because sometimes when I see those tweets from you, it does not seem particularly healthy. It never occurred to me that it was like a form of self-care. <laughs> It's all self-care. What else has that site meant for you, both personally and in your career? Maybe this is a self-serving question because I'm the one who got you on it, but you would have gotten on it anyway. And I don't know, man, it seems from the sidelines, like maybe it's been significant. Oh, it absolutely. Twitter has gotten me almost every good journalism gig or piece ultimately 
that I've ever had or done. It got me an agent because I tweeted, I think I need an agent. And two days later, I had an agent. And it was a godsend for this book because, for instance, I could go on Twitter and say, I need to talk to a nurse from St. Vincent's Hospital in the village who was there in 1990. And then, you know, the nephew of the head of nurses would contact me and would say, talk to my aunt. Or I'd say, I want to find regulars from the Blue Parrot Bar in Philadelphia circa 1988. Well, I did. And I'm not sure that there was another way that that could have happened. It was really an extraordinary tool. You know, on a personal level, I'm grateful for Twitter just because of the relationships. I am friends with probably the majority of the people that I follow. And there are just a lot of extraordinary people out there, and they all happen to congregate in one place. And yes, Twitter is a toxic shithole, <laughs> and you just have to find those pockets that are not. You got to go looking for them. That's right. Or they find you. I think for many people, it's more toxic shithole than the other things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a position of privilege for me to pick and choose because I don't have Nazis in my mentions all day or people telling me I'm subhuman. Or maybe I do. I just have the quality filter turn on, so I don't <laughs> know. But I know that for most people, the site is a horror show. And I know that. Has it been bad for you in any way? Like, has it broken or rewired your brain in any way that you wish that it hadn't? Yes. And I've spent the last year trying to correct that. It certainly made it much harder for me to read books. Definitely short-circuited that part of my brain. But that was my goal for this year, was to read more books. And so far, so good. And to put one out in the world. Yes. Well, I had no choice about that. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. I... um I think it's pretty impressive, and I got to tell you, I feel like if uh, the two people who were sitting at the alibi 10 years ago knew that we'd be having this conversation, uh, I feel like they'd be pretty impressed too. Impressed and shocked. It's exciting, man. Do you, do you have a sense of what happens now? Like, um, is the next book going to be in the same vein, or are you, gonna, are you looking to do something else? I have no idea. All I want to do is to find a story, regardless of what the genre is or what the topic is, but I, I need to care about it enough and I need to care about the people involved and love the people involved enough for me to want to do it for two years. And I don't know what that's going to be. And I haven't found it. And quite frankly, I'm not really looking. But when I do... 
I have to love it every day I'm working on it because that's what happened here and I don't want to go through this experience any differently. It's a pretty high bar, man, finding another story that'll make you happy every day. It might be too high, but I guess we'll see. Hey, Elon, thanks for doing this, man. It was my immense pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsor, MailChimp. And thanks so much to Elon Green. His book is called Last Call. Go get it. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.